Good morning, church family. Uh, this is Sergey. Uh, I miss being with you all this morning, but uh, I'm grateful for technology and our ability to study the scriptures together, to study the book of John together. And this week, my friend and fellow elder Eric Reeves from Fort Collins will be preaching to us. And I'm bummed that you won't be able to see him and meet him, uh, but this is his sermon from, uh, from Fort Collins on our next passage. And I'm looking forward to being with you next week. Good morning, church. Uh, my name is Eric. I'm one of the elders, one of the pastors here on staff. I want to ask you a question this morning, a question that every person on the face of the planet has to answer sooner or later. And the question is this. How do you, do you personally, explain Jesus? How do you explain Jesus? I mean, what explanation of Jesus accounts for all the effects he's had upon society for the last 2,000 years? All of us in here are affected, aren't we? You're here. You're in a church for two hours on a Sunday morning. You are affected, no matter what you think about Jesus. This church only, only exists because of Jesus. You're affected. How do you think about Jesus? How do you explain him? We're thinking about the other phenomena. How do you explain the billions of followers Jesus has had this centuries, even though we have nothing that's been written by him? He died when he was about 30, maybe 32 years old. His followers were uneducated fishermen. They weren't cultural influencers. How do you explain these things? How do you explain it? He held no political position of power. The religious leaders of that day hated him. Why does he still exert such influence? Why is our calendar based uh, closely, uh, give, a few, give or take a few years, to his birth? Why is so much literature and poetry and art devoted to this guy? Why is this book, the Bible, which is about him, the most popular and best-selling book of all time? Why is this? How do we explain Jesus and the effects that he's had? What explanation best makes sense of this? You see, the effects of Jesus demand an explanation, don't they? Wherever you land, they still demand an explanation. We all must explain Jesus somehow. Maybe, maybe he was, a, maybe he's delusional. He just tricked his earliest followers. Maybe he's fictional. Maybe somebody just made him up. Maybe he's just a really good teacher. He knew the Old Testament really well, so he wowed people that way. Just, just a really good teacher. Maybe something else. Or maybe he's something more. What's the explanation for Jesus? See, this is the question this morning, and it's a crucial question. This is going to drive us in the text this morning. And listen to this. It's a question that we better not answer just by our own conjecture. We as humans are wrong all the time, aren't we? <laughs> so we needed to go some, to something that's a little more authoritative than our own conjecture, a source from outside of us. We as a church believe that the Bible is God's very word to us, a source from outside of us, and so we see this as authoritative. And this is where we're going to go this morning to answer this question. How do we best explain Jesus? If you're just joining us, we are in the first several weeks of a study on the book of John. That's where we're going to go today is the book of John. John is a gospel. You can turn there now if you'd like. It's toward the back of your Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. All of those books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are all Gospels, and, and the Gospels exist to share information about the story of Jesus, but it doesn't end there, does it? It's not just about information. They're also written for a very specific reason. 
All right, we should have some kids in here this morning. Good. I have some questions just for you kids this morning. So when I ask the question, I want you guys to shout it out, all right? Here's the first question. What is the one-word reason we've been given, we are, been, we are being, uh, uh, being oh, that we're using? Sorry, I'm going to start over. This will help you better. <laughs> like, we can't even understand that guy. <laughs> what is the one word that we've been using for the book of John that explains what it's about, why it's been written? Remember? What's the one word? Believe. believe. Pastor's kid. Nice. Good. <laughs> yes, believe. Believe what? believe the truth about Jesus, about the right explanation for who he is. All right, remember last week in the story of Nicodemus? Nicodemus sought an explanation for Jesus too, didn't he? He comes to Jesus, but Nicodemus is this religious teacher. He's a Jewish leader of that day, but he has these inklings that Jesus may be more than just another teacher, and so what does he do? He does the only sensible thing to do. He actually approaches Jesus and asks him these questions. And so now, in our text this morning, John, the author, is now going to provide us with another story about people not too unlike us who are asking some similar questions. They're looking for an explanation. So if you haven't yet, please turn to the book of John. We're going to be in John chapter 3 this morning. Like last week, John is going to first give us the story, and then he's going to give us his own reflection upon that story. But unlike last week, we're not going to have two very different individuals. We're going to have actually two pretty similar groups of people doing a very similar thing. They're both baptizing people. All right, kids, I have another question for you. We're about to read a couple verses in the Bible, and this is what I want you to look for. And I'm going to ask you, I want you to yell it out afterwards. Okay, look for this. Jesus is leading one of those groups baptizing people, but somebody is leading the other group. Who's leading the other group? We're going to read the first two verses. I'm going to ask you. You just shout it out, okay? All right. Actually, these are three verses. I can't, I can't do my math. We're going to do verses 22 through 24 of John chapter 3. Let me read this. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Enon near Selim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. Who's the other person? Oh, man, you were, you were on that. The first service was a little groggy. Nice work. Yes, it's John the Baptist himself, which means we're going to be talking about two Johns this morning. Let's keep them straight. One's the author of this book, and one is John the Baptist, two very different people. But even though John the Baptist didn't write this book, he's still really important, isn't he? He and Jesus were both prophesied to come from the Old Testament. He and Jesus were given God-ordained work, and he and Jesus are now both baptizing simultaneously. Actually, we'll see next week in chapter 4 that Jesus himself is not doing the baptizing, but his disciples are. And just a quick little aside on this baptism. This baptism here that we're reading about is not the baptism that we do today. The baptism that we do today is a believer identifying with Jesus. That Jesus does a change inside of us, and so baptism is this outward expression of symbolically being identified with Jesus in his death when under the water and back to new life, dying to ourselves and back to new life like Jesus' resurrection. Paul, who wrote most of the rest of the New Testament, he talks about this in Romans 6 and the Colossians 2. You can look at that at some point. But that can't be the baptism here, can it? Because Jesus hasn't died yet, and he hasn't rose again yet. 
So most likely the baptism that Jesus' disciples are doing is a baptism of repentance, which is what John the Baptist has been doing all along. So they're both doing a baptism of repentance, most likely. In fact, the book of John is the only gospel that records Jesus doing formal ministry at the same time as John the Baptist. All the other gospels don't pick up Jesus' formal ministry until John the Baptist has exited the scene. That might explain a little bit verse 24, that parenthetical that, just so you know, this happened before John was put into prison. John's readers were probably familiar with with the gospel of Mark, which was the earliest gospel probably written, so they may have been confused, so John makes it clear. But here's the question for us. Why then does John include this story? It's not in in the other gospels. Why does he include the story of the simultaneous baptizing of these two groups of people, um, Jesus' group and also John's group with other people? The answer, I believe, can be what found happens next. Let's read verses 25 through 26. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, He is baptizing, and all are going to him. So why does John include this story? He includes this story because he wants to record this interaction, which is only possible to record if both these groups are baptizing at the same time. Like like Nicodemus from last week, John's disciples are a little bit bewildered. They've got some questions, and they're seeking an explanation. Did you catch it? It was not a question mark at the end of what they said. It was an observation, but there's a question implied there. A discussion between John, John the Baptist's disciples and an unnamed Jew over purification somehow lead them to come back to John the Baptist and make this observation. There's different theories on what the connection is there between purification and their, and their observation, but the point is the story turns now on this observation. It is a loaded observation. Notice, John's disciples come to him and call him rabbi. Rabbi is his honorific title used in the ancient world and just means teacher. But everywhere else in the Gospels, that word is only ever used of Jesus. But now we hear John's disciples calling him rabbi. So think about what this does. Here we have Jesus the rabbi, and now we have John the rabbi. And John's disciples are noticing some developments due to this other rabbi, Jesus, that demands an explanation. What are those developments? Well, there's at least two. Here's the first one. Not even mentioning Jesus by name, John's disciples understand that Jesus is the very one to whom John the Baptist has been bearing witness. Things are changing. No longer is John preparing the way for Jesus. Jesus is now here. No longer do you need to point to Jesus before Jesus gets here. Jesus is now here. And certainly implied in this is a difference of authority, as a sign is inferior to the object it's pointing to. When I'm driving through the mountains and there's that sign on the side of the road that's pointing to a named peak, I don't just keep on standing on the sign. I look to the peak and I expect to see the the majesty of this mountain out there much, much more so majestic than the sign itself. So here in our text, John's disciples point their fingers upstream to the one to whom John the Baptist has been pointing all along. John the Baptist and Jesus the rabbi are not equal. 
So now what? What does that now mean for John's disciples? An explanation is needed. Now notice development number two. While both camps are doing the same ministry simultaneously, most of the people are now going to Jesus. The disciples say all the people, but we know in verse 23 that's an exaggeration. They use it to make their point. All the people are going now to Jesus because something very large has changed. The popularity of their baptizing ministry is diminishing. It's not equal to Jesus. This shift is large. In in the first chapter of the book of Mark, we're told that before Jesus arrived on the scene, John the Baptist had a monopoly in the baptizing market, so to speak. Everybody was going to John the Baptist. All the country of Judea, all of Jerusalem were going to John to be baptized. But now things have dramatically changed. And John's disciples are noticing these things. And so it forces them to make this observation to John with an important implied question behind them. I believe the question is essentially this. What is the explanation for Jesus? It's a question with an edge of jealousy to it. Did you pick that up? But I believe it is primarily, like Nicodemus, a question looking for understanding. Can you relate to John's disciples? Does it feel, either now or at times, you have more questions about Jesus than answers, that there's this nagging feeling that maybe Jesus is more than you've been told he is, or you currently believe he is? Or maybe you've known Jesus for a really, really long time, and, and you want to assess your, your view of, of Jesus. Is it accurate to who Scripture says he actually is? The question of John's disciples runs through the centuries, and it's still relevant for us today. What is the explanation for Jesus And so John's disciples come to their teacher, to their rabbi, John the Baptist, and they ask this question. And John answers. Let's start reading his answer in verse 27. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Stop there. John immediately shifts the perspective, and he he shatters the notion that there's any jealousy or competition between him and Jesus. Emphatically, Not even one thing is received unless it is God who has given it. See, John's, think about this. John's ministry, just like Jesus' ministry, have both been given to them by God. There's one source for both of these. And so then think about this. What this means, if this is true, that when we desire to change things that only God alone can give us, when we think we know better what we should be given, whether it's a bigger ministry or some other change of circumstance in our life, that desire is paramount to desiring to be God ourselves. Because God alone can give those things. And John the Baptist, he's not going to have anything to do with this. And so he dramatically frames his role not as a competitor with Jesus, but as a recipient of God's sovereign and gracious decisions. Rather than being bothered by the appearance of Jesus and the developments, John is accepting of them. He's not worked up. Why? Because God is the one giver of all things. There's no one and nothing that can compete with God, which means there is no divine competition. There's no second guessing in what's given or how it's given or to who it's given or when it's given. All things are from God's trustworthy hand, 
including the developments that are bothering John's disciples. So John's first point to his disciples, when they're looking for an explanation of these new developments surrounding Jesus, is to remind them that God alone is in control. What a curious way to start, don't you think? God alone is in control. But now John moves quickly onto a second point, and it's pretty pointed. Just like Nicodemus last week, who is this Jewish scholar who knows the Old Testament really well and should have known better about Jesus, so too John's disciples should have known better. John gets at this, verse 28. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. See, John, John has already explained to his disciples that he and Jesus are not equal. The growing effects of Jesus around them should already make sense to them. John has already explained it to them. We actually read about it back in chapter 1 of this book. Do you remember? People are coming to John the Baptist, and they're asking him, who are you, and why are you baptizing? And John responds like this. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. John's God-given role to prepare the way for Jesus, the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah, John was to be a sign pointing to Jesus. See, John had no delusions of grandeur. <laughs> he knew he wasn't the Christ. He knew he wasn't the point. He's not equal with Jesus. And so John reminds his disciples of something they should have already known. John the Baptist's ministry was to point to the Christ and not be the Christ. The same goes for us today, doesn't it? I think it's amazing how a story like this, in a very specific context, 2,000 years ago in a different part of the world, is still a reminder that we as believers need to hear. We are not in control, but a good and sovereign God is. Our job, just like John's job, is to point to Jesus, not be Jesus. This is true no matter your station in life. It doesn't matter how much influence you think you have or you think you don't have. It's my job and it's your job to point others to Jesus and not be Jesus. We don't take his place. We both acknowledge God's sovereignty, but that should not lead us to passivity. Rather, we both acknowledge God's sovereignty and at the same time embrace and actively participate in the roles that God has given us, which is to point to Jesus. Does that make sense? I'm going to ask, does that make sense a few times? It's really helpful if you nod or say something, because I'm genuinely asking. <laughs> okay, I'm going to take that as a yes. All right, now John has done these two points he, he uses them to calm down his disciples a little bit. He essentially says, God is sovereign over all the developments around Jesus, and oh, by the way, we're not the point anyway. Now, with that groundwork laid, John now moves to show them how they are to respond to Jesus, and he models it. 
and he starts by using a parable. In this parable, the bridegroom represents Jesus, and the friend of the bridegroom represents John the Baptist. So kids, here's my next question for you. Oh, I got the eyes. This is my next question for you. I'm going to read this parable, and I want you to listen for what is the reaction of the friend to the bridegroom. What does he feel? What's the emotions? What does he feel to the voice, the voice of the bridegroom? Does that make sense? What does the friend feel about the bridegroom? Let's read this. Verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. What does the friend feel? Joy. Yes, absolutely right. In fact, the way that John writes this, literally he's saying, this, this is what he says, rejoices with joy. This is emphatic that the, bride, the friend of the bridegroom experiences joy. The presence of Jesus, the, the very culmination of the ministry that John had, resulted in John experiencing great joy. He didn't just accept it. He actually felt utter joy, rejoicing with joy in it. The presence of Jesus absolutely demands an explanation, but rather than feeling bewildered about Jesus and the changes he brings, John the Baptist feels utter joy. Then he moves really quickly on to another response, a second response. It's really a short, a sort of summary response. It's the last words of John the Baptist, at least in this book. This is his last hurrah. Let's read this, verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. John's summary response to the presence of Jesus is one of utter humility. He must increase, but I must decrease. I think one of the most helpful definitions of humility I've ever run across is essentially this. Genuine humility is seeing yourself as God sees you. A genuine humility is seeing yourself as God sees you. Let's think about this just for a minute. John the Baptist modeled this. He, he acknowledged his valuable God-given role to the point to Jesus back in verse 28. And he also acknowledged at the same time that he's not the Christ, he's not the point. He had an accurate view of himself as well as an accurate view of Jesus. And what did this bring him? It brought him joy. <laughs> so how? So here's the question then. So how then can we see, our, see ourselves as God sees us? We believe to a greater and greater extent of what God says about us in the Bible, don't we? God says that you are not scum, but you're valuable because he created you and he put his image in you. Do you believe that? The Bible says it's true. I hope you believe that. God also says that you are not God. <laughs> that he gives you everything you have, all your skills, all your abilities, all your talents. You can't generate those things on your own. You're not God. So, so think about this then. The genuine humility avoids then two opposite extremes, doesn't it? The one extreme error that we think we're gods, and the other extreme error that we're just scum, that we loathe who we are because we have no value at all. My guess is all of us in here tend to lean one direction or the other. I tend to lean toward the pride side, that way too often what I really desire is my own glory over God's glory. I'm essentially a sign that just points to myself. How sad is that? And so a prayer that I have to pray virtually daily is that God would increase my desire for his glory over my own. 
So if you find yourself in this camp, that might be a helpful prayer for you, that God would increase our desire for God's glory over our own. If you're in this camp, though, if you struggle with self-loathing, I think a prayer for you may be to pray that God would help you to believe to a greater and greater extent of the value that you have that he's given you. Do you see what these two prayers do? Both these two prayers are really asking God for genuine humility. Both of these. John's response to the presence of Jesus was one of joy and humility. If you're a Christian, if you would say that you follow Jesus and are a believer, is joy and humility your posture toward life? You know what I mean? I don't mean do you just feel joyful all the time or do you feel humble all the time, but is this your posture as you approach life? For me, I often get distracted. My eyes don't remain on Jesus. I I get distracted by, really, it's just the details of everyday life. They distract me. And so my posture toward life tends to ebb and flow as the details of my life ebb and flow, that it's more dependent upon what's happening around me than who Jesus is. And so what do I need? I need other people to remind me who Jesus is because I get distracted. I need to read God's word to be reminded because I get distracted. I need to communicate with God and pray to be reminded about who Jesus is because I get distracted. A mark of maturing faith is a steadier and steadier posture of joy and humility, not based on life circumstances, but based on the unchanging person and reality of Jesus. Whether your project at work goes well or not, whether your relationship blossoms or it fades away, whether your kids fight all the time or actually show some love to each other, whether your 401k got wiped out by the stock market and then brought back the next day, whether coronavirus comes to Fort Collins or not, our posture toward life is to be one of sturdy joy and humility based on Jesus who doesn't change. Does that make sense? It seems impossible though, doesn't it? But we're told that Jesus is not impossible. John modeled it. A steadfast response of joy and humility. This is John's response to his disciples. They come to him asking for an explanation for Jesus, and this is what he says. How do you think they're responding to this? I'm imagining that they're pretty confused. Really, we're supposed to have a posture of joy and humility when a different rabbi comes who's more significant than our own? We're supposed to have a posture of joy and humility when our ministry popularity is actually diminishing? I've got to think they were wondering what they missed about Jesus that resulted in John's response. The presence of Jesus demands an explanation, but John's explanation up here seems to assume a view of Jesus profoundly different from that of his disciples. So what was John's view Who is this Jesus that makes sense of John's response to him? Now, I I think that question is exactly what John the author wants us to ask. The answer to this question is the main point of this passage. Who is this Jesus anyway? And so now John the author is going to provide his reflection upon this story. His reflection is the rest of our passage passage today. I'm going to read all of it. What I want you to do is listen or read along I want you to consider what is the view of Jesus that we're going to get in this passage. Take to this passage the question, who is then this Jesus? I'm going to ask us to stand as I read this passage. I'm going to read the rest of this passage, verses 31 through 36. 
After I read it, I'll say, this is the God's word, and you can respond by saying, thanks be to God. John 3, verses 31 through 36. He who comes from above all is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is God's word. You may be seated. Do you feel the, the author, John, just piling glory upon glory upon glory upon glory upon Jesus? He, he's utterly unique. He's not like anyone or anything we have ever encountered before. Our heads should be spinning with all these things in these last few verses. I'm going to point them out really quickly. Listen, I, I want you to pay attention to what you feel about Jesus' identity and how that makes sense now of John the Baptist's response to him. Verse 31. Unlike John the Baptist, who's from the earth, Jesus is unlike any other teacher or leader or pastor or prophet. Jesus' origin is divine. Verse 32. Because Jesus' origin is divine, he has the unique authority to relate with certainty the counsels of God. Jesus' witness, his testimony about God is true with certainty. This means Jesus is an unparalleled witness of God. So, so catch this. It just has a quick little aside. So catch this. Truth about God has come to humanity not from within us, as some philosophies teach, but actually from outside of us from so far outside of us as to be from above and not even of this world, in the form and person of Jesus who God sent out of grace. This truth has come from outside of us, so we as Christians see this as authoritative. Verse 33 through 34, And because verses 31 through 32 are true, believing Jesus is no less than believing God himself. Which means, the flip side of that is if you don't believe Jesus, you are essentially calling God a liar. That's a harsh charge. Let's be careful what we believe about Jesus. How can we then be, be sure that Jesus is true? Not only by his divine origin, but read on, but also because God the Father has given Jesus the Holy Spirit, who in other places in Scripture is called the Spirit of Truth. He's given him to Jesus without measure, boundless. He's unleashed the Spirit within the person of Jesus. But that's not all that God the Father has given Jesus. Verse 35, out of love, God the Father has given Jesus all things. <laughs> this Jesus who in verse 31 is from above all and is above all, now has all things in his hand. What does that leave out? Nothing. What a view of Jesus, the Christ. You sense the glory, the magnificence, the centrality, the authority of Jesus. 
His origin is divine. He is utterly unique. His witness is certain. His authority is unrivaled. His words are the very words of God, and his work is the very work of God. He has been given the Spirit without measure. He is above all and holds all in his hand. If you believe and trust Jesus, this is who you are believing in and trusting. Things change in the presence of Jesus, don't they? John the Baptist's disciples witnessed it and they didn't fully understand it. They needed an explanation. So what is that explanation that makes sense of all this? Putting it all together, the simplest explanation is that Jesus is God. There's no other explanation. This is why John the Baptist responds with such joy to the presence of Jesus. Jesus is God. This is why John the Baptist can have a posture of genuine humility and freely proclaim he's not the Christ, because he's not God. Jesus is God. It's why people began to flock to Jesus in his early ministry and why Jesus was the one to whom John the Baptist was sent to point, because Jesus is God. See, believing that Jesus was just a really good teacher or was delusional or was fictional just doesn't make sense. Really good teachers don't have other really good teachers go before them, prepare their way before they even begin their careers. Delusional people don't inspire in other people postures of joy and humility. And fictional people don't do anything, outside our imagination at least. Good teachers, the delusional and the fictional, aren't above all. They aren't from above all, and they don't hold all in their hands. But John emphatically writes that Jesus does and Jesus is. Do you believe this? See, the reality of Jesus and the effects he brings begs for an explanation. And this is the point of this book of John. The author pleads with us to believe that Jesus is God. And it's a belief with mind-blowing implications. Verse 36 again. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. What are the results of belief? Etern- Thank you, yes, eternal life. In fact, think about this. In fact, it's an eternal life that starts right now. Whoever believes in the Son has present tense, not future, present tense, eternal life. Eternal life isn't this far-off concept. It's not, it's not that if you trust Jesus, the change he brings doesn't start until at some point in the future, that we just hope that someday things will change, but rather our new life starts as soon as you trust Jesus to save you. And the new life that's given to you now must necessarily be evidenced by how you live now. Do you see how John tied this in the very last verse? The true faith is the ground that must necessarily spring up right conduct. John connects believing in the Son with obeying the Son. We're not talking about being perfect. If you trust Jesus, you aren't all sudden sinless, are you? Rather, we are talking about a way of life, an eternal life that starts right now. A result of believing Jesus is that he starts to change our hearts. He changes them all at once, and then over time, we become more and more obedient. So our lives are then defined by obedience. We still sin, but we're still defined by obedience and not, conversely, defined by disobedience. Does that make sense? 
Does your way of life reflect an eternal life that has already begun? One of increasing obedience to God, flowing from a heart that he alone changed within you. If not, if we disbelieve and so our hearts are unchanged, if our life is defined by disobedience, the ultimate result, verse 36 tells us, will be personally experiencing God's terrifying wrath upon our sin. The stakes are high. To make sense of God's wrath here, we need to consider the arc of the biblical story. God created humanity with no sin. Yet Adam freely chose to sin anyway. He disbelieved and disobeyed God. And that created a rupture between humanity and God. No more relationship. Humanity could do nothing about it. Because God is holy, so he's completely without sin, and because God is just, meaning he is always opposed to evil. We should want this. We shouldn't want this any other way. Our sin cannot be tolerated. Otherwise, God would cease to be God. God is and must be wrathful towards sin. Does that make sense? God's wrath is not something for us to shy away from. It's a part of God's very character. It's a beautiful thing. We want justice, don't we? Without the intervention of God himself, our sin defines us, and so we cannot be in relationship with God, but rather we only experience his wrath. We're destined for eternal separation from God, an eternal death. But here's the good news. John wrote this last week. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That is the gospel. That's the good news for us. God's just, but it doesn't mean that if we believe in Jesus that we are now going to experience his wrath upon our sin. Why? Kids, who did God send to deal with our sin? Yes! That's two in a row. Nice work. God, while remaining completely holy and just, made a way for our sin to be dealt with that did not include you and me dying for our sin. He sent his perfect son, Jesus, the Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world to take our place, to live the perfect life of obedience you and I could never live, and to die the death we deserved, taking God's wrath away from us. God doesn't change, but now we shall experience his wrath because of Jesus. By believing and trusting Jesus alone to save us, we get to begin eternal life with God right now without any fear of God's wrath. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Do you feel the significance of Jesus? Please say yes. This sermon failed, if not. Do you feel the significance of Jesus? How you personally explain Jesus is vitally crucial. It has far-reaching implications, further-reaching implications than any other explanation you will ever wrestle through with the rest of your life. According to John, there's a whole line of implications that fall if you believe Jesus to be God, and a whole other line that falls if you believe he is not. One line leads to life, and the other line leads to death. And so John pleads with you to believe Jesus is God and all that entails. If you don't yet believe, if you're wrestling with who Jesus is, and you've got some good questions, and there are some good questions out there, I would encourage you to continue to seek an explanation. Just like Nicodemus last week, just like John's disciples this week. 
And come back, stick with us. We're going to continue our journey through the book of John, and John has a lot more to say about this. Here's my greatest encouragement for you. Do you remember Jesus' response to Nicodemus last week when Nicodemus came to him and asked questions? Did Jesus remain silent? No. He answered, didn't he? Jesus promises to be found if you seek him. And even your desire to seek him has been given to you by God himself. That should be encouraging. Jesus alone saves, and he is the answer to these questions that you have. So continue to seek. Continue to ask these questions. If you already believe, if you're a Christian, this is what we get to look forward to. We get to look forward to all of the implications that knowing Jesus brings, which in part means a sturdier and sturdier posture of joy and humility to life, and our lives become more and more obedient to what God has for us. It's beautiful. And so we pray that God would show us more and more of Jesus as we mature in our faith. And most of all, we worship. We worship Jesus, who is God himself. Let me pray for us as we continue to worship. Let's pray. God, I thank you that by your grace you preserved this story for thousands of years so we could read it this morning. And that by your spirit, you're making it relevant to us. You're, you're speaking to us. I pray that will continue. Would you sensitize our hearts to what it is you have for us in this story? What, what elements it is that you're impressing upon us? Thank you for your grace in that. I pray for that, those of us who already know you and trust you to save us. I, I pray that you would be growing more joy and humility in our hearts. I, I pray that our lives would become more reflective of our knowledge of you, more reflective of our love for you. Will there be greater consistency between how we live and how we think? We ask for your grace in that. You can do that. You are doing that. You promise to do that. I also pray for those of us who aren't sure who Jesus is, and, and we've got some questions. I, I pray that you would not allow them to be satisfied with any explanation that isn't true. Would, would all the, the explanations of Jesus that just simply don't hold water, would they not be satisfying? I pray that by your grace to continue to seek and to ask questions. I pray you draw them to yourself. Thank you for your grace and your goodness, goodness to us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.